0: Good afternoon everyone and welcome to our debrief live uh this afternoon. Uh today we're going to be talking about ESCOM and climate finance. And we're going to be understanding as it goes through its transition. Um part and parcel of that story is the transitioning from legacy debt to new debt. And in that we all have to wrap our minds around the latest thinking on climate finance. Uh before we get started, just some housekeeping. Uh, first of all, uh, there is a, a chat function, uh, encouraging you all to uh, post your questions on the chat function. If it does uh, break or the transmission breaks, just refresh your screen and you'll be back with us. Uh, importantly, um, uh, Nedbank, uh, the, the views uh, expressed today are uh, those of uh, the analysts, uh, independently those of the analysts and not those of the NetBank group. Uh, moreover, um, it's that uh, we uh not making any recommendations to hold, buy or sell securities. Um, now that uh, is out of the way, I'd like to also uh, welcome our guests today. Um, our guest speaker today is Dr. Javier Stein. Um He is the MD of Meridian Economics. He's an expert in uh, energy and infrastructure, particularly advisory on the regulatory and policy side. Um, and I'm also joined in studio by Peter tartman um, He's the head of uh, capital markets research at Intellidex. Um, and he's uh, no stranger to South Africa. He writes very often um, in the business day. And he's no stranger as well to financial markets, um, given his history uh, in uh, the emerging markets, uh, capital markets. Um, as we get going, um, to get straight into it, I'd like to actually turn to you, Peter. Peter, just come back from COP26, and so we just want to pick your brains a bit about South Africa. You know, people are saying that the politics didn't win at COP26, uh, but a lot happened on the sides for private sector, specifically for ESCOM. What changed? Did we win anything positive? What's the story?
1: Well, everyone has been quite negative on this uh, COP26 uh, outcome uh, at the official negotiation level. Um, In terms of language on coal, for instance, uh, those sorts of issues. But I think what really came together was the side events, the private sector financing and the framing even from the official text of the debates um, of the role of the public sector of uh, the transition from coal, no matter how you phrase it. Uh, certainly uh, the importance of, of gas uh, and of the just and social elements as well, which South Africa was particularly putting on uh, the agenda. So it wasn't in the final text, really, this reference to a just transition, but it was certainly in the side events, uh, in the discussions on financing. Um, but, you know, I was there standing, you know, for a lot of time at the South Africa pavilion. Uh, there was a huge um, love affair with South Africa, this day two win on the Tuesday, uh, the announcement of the political declaration on the billion dollars. Um, I think I maybe got a bit over-optimistic on it a bit early on, it's, it's actually it is very tentative, it's a political declaration, there's no agreements on uh, you know, financing terms, on conditionality, uh, I think there's a lot of disagreements on the, um, the funder donor side uh, as much as there is on the South African government side but it is unusual for South Africa to have these things um, you know, and it is certainly a boon, South Africa won in some sense the, the COP um, as, a, uh, as a result. Um, but no, I mean, it's forcing some very difficult conversations that Africa isn't used to, such as the imposition of conditionality, mm, mm. Um, the discussions that labor and business are trying to have about how the money is used, when actually this was really an ESCOM originated sort of plan that was pushed up to the sovereign level uh, but really it was Mandy at ESCOM who, who, who pushed this thing uh, and although we have EVs and we have hydrogen there, it's going to end up mostly being for, for ESCOM um, but no, I mean there's a lot of unknowns there. There's a reference to legacy debt uh, in particular which I don't think they entirely know in the donor side how, we'll, how it will work out um, but no, certainly it's, it's unusual for South it's, it's a positive even if it is a, a political declaration.
0: Indeed, and I think uh, most of all is that you know a lot of hard work was put in to set South Africa's NDCs and to actually put uh, some commitments that are, if you want, bankable from the donor community. So it's a good problem to have to try and figure out how this exactly. will work. Will it, be, will it happen within six months, a year? You know, things
1: can take a long time to negotiate. Well, my fear is that the donors don't really know how you add up the eight and a half. So a lot of things that may have been happening on the side get dragged into it. There are big decisions on how you structure this, either bilaterally through the sovereign or with ESCOM uh, from individual donors, or you go through as as something like the CIF. Um, There are big disagreements over conditionality, the role of uh, ESCOM doing its own renewables, Um, uh, this hydrogen and other other issues. So, I mean, there are plenty of stumbling blocks, certainly. I think it would help if we had a new IRP, say. um, We had a a conversation that was more rooted on accelerated decommissioning. The US and the UK are particularly going to to push that. Um, But at the very least, this is going to force those conversations, which we need to be having anyway. Um, So I think a lot of good can come out of it, even if it maybe does take us a little bit uh, longer or the latter end of sort of 12 months to to actually get this across the line.
0: Indeed. So I think I'll turn now to... Uh, to um, You had done quite a lot of work uh, as Meridian Economics to set out a just transition pathway to finance ESCOM. And it's a, it's a, I, I put it as a fresh idea out there compared to what other proposals have been put forward. Um, and so um, I'm going to turn to you to uh, present your thoughts just to give people uh, the bones of the design of your proposal. And then we'll get into some discussion on some of the implications for the capital markets and what people need to think about um, or take away from it. Uh, Over to you, Ravier.
2: Thank you. Uh, Thanks, Jones, and thanks for asking us to join the conversation today. Yes, so, so the ideas I'm going to be talking about today actually predate the the recent proposals uh, made by ESCOM. We've actually been looking at some of these options uh, for a couple of years and, uh, and, and we've also been feeding it into the discourse over the last couple of years. So, in some ways, it is indeed different to the proposals made by ESCOM, but I'll get to to that point and perhaps a bit of a comparison between the two sets of ideas and how they are complementary towards the end of the slides. But, yes, so let's jump straight in. It's always useful to just think about the problem statements you know, before we start thinking about solutions, just to be clear about what the challenges are that we're trying to address. Uh, And actually, we set out uh, thinking about the ESCOM debt overhang problem and and what the implications are uh, at many different levels. So I mean, I presume uh, most participants in today's meeting will be well well familiar with the the kind of challenges around ESCOM's balance sheets. and, and that's, uh, you know, uh, we, in a situation where ESCOM is uh, really only uh, able to service approximately half of the debt on its, on its balance sheet. And that it's dependent uh, on enormous, um, uh, bailouts from our national treasury, uh, just to enable it to meet its uh, debt service obligations. So, uh, last year, uh, financial year 21, ISCOM received about 56 billion, and actually the previous two years, the total was 105 billion rands of, uh, bailouts. The existing committed, um, bailouts going into the, the next few years is, is at a bit of a lower level. Uh, but, um, so, so this is, uh, the kind of situation that we stuck at the moment. However, our view is that, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what the effect is of this um, uh, st- uh, strand in debt and the, the problem not being solved, but uh, our, our view is that the current government strategy, uh, indeed, that th- does not solve the problem. It really is just a drip-feeding strategy uh, that is uh, admittedly uh, quite a lot, I mean, involves quite large amounts at times, but it's still technically just giving ESCOM sufficient cash to meet its immediate debt debt related obligations um, it's not really helping it to reduce uh and uh, uh, and unwind the, the the kind of debt debt burden on its on its balance sheet and the effect of that and the modeling we've done supports this uh on on top of the ESCOM numbers that actually uh, over the medium term uh, with the current strategy as announced uh, the debt is actually going to comp- compound we we do not actually have um, a visible pathway at the moment for how ESCOM's balance sheet problems are going to be resolved, and um, and that's of course a, a very significant and serious uh, situation that is not is not sustainable. So uh, our, our view is that we do ultimately need a, a large scale, uh, fundamental uh, plan and, and intervention to be put in place to, to resolve this, even if it takes a number of years to implement. Um, so um uh, and and of course the issue the, the reason why this is important is not just because it's a state and, a state and enterprise that is uh, that is fa- is failing financially, but of course it's systemically important it affects the entire economy so of course it it increases the the, the general uh, risk of the sovereign risk profile, the cost of sovereign debt the cost of debt throughout the economy so that itself is a serious um situation. Uh, but there's a further issue that's not uh, not often well uh, thought through, and that is that it it affects our ability to to decarbonise our economy and our um, and our power sector. So um, basically, uh, most of the investments, and we we're talking about the, the need to finance approximately one trillion rands worth of infrastructure investment in the power sector over the next 10 years or so. And, and, and one way or another, most of those projects will be exposed to ESCOM risk. Either ESCOM itself will have to raise the finance to, to expand the grid, both transmission and distribution, or it, it could be situations where um independent power producers need to sell the power to ESCOM, ESCOM is the off-taker, and again, you're in effect taking ESCOM risk, et cetera. And the way we have um Bumbled along over the last few years with the ESCOM financing problem is essentially that we've solved the financing problem by national governments providing sovereign guarantees. But that option is, is rapidly running out. Uh, there, there's no way that, this, that uh, given this strained um, national finances that we are going to be able to provide government guarantees for an additional one trillion rands of Infrastructure investment over the next uh, 10 years, and that's just in the power sector alone. We're not here talking about all the other infrastructure needs in the economy. So we are going to have to put in place a better solution uh, than just relying on our uh, rapidly vanishing uh, ability to provide sovereign guarantees to finance power sector investments. So and that's really um, what got us thinking about how, how do we provide a, a system-level solution. Now, I mean, the, I think the first point to make, of course, is that all of this risk is in effect currently on the sovereign balance sheets, right? We know that, Yeah, you, can, you only need to read the rating agency reports to, to, to see that point being made very, very clear. So, in the, the final instance, uh, the, the, the sovereign is already in effect paying the cost of the ESCOM debt, and it's of course doing it at ESCOM's interest rates, not at sovereign, at the sovereign interest rates. So uh, surely we can do better than that. So the, the one uh, question we thought is, well, you know, if we are trying to achieve a number of objectives at the same time, we're trying to uh, unlock this ISCOM debt problem, we are trying to accelerate huge investments in the decarbonisation of our power sector. Um, And and, uh, perhaps a third consideration is, is, uh, paradoxically, we're sitting with uh, probably one of the world's most carbon-intensive power power, power sectors, right? Uh, ISCOM produces something like 84% of its electricity from coal power. Um, So now the question is, uh, given that South Africa is such a significant emitter, the 12th largest in the world in absolute terms, um, is there an opportunity for us to um, use our ability to accelerate the decarbonization of our power sector to attract concessional climate finance at a large scale? And could we use that to assist our sovereign with unlocking this uh, uh, ISCOM Gordian knot so that we are able to actually access long-term capital market finance for this enormous uh, infrastructure investment uh, program that we actually need to, need to implement? So that's really where the angle that we came from when we started thinking about climate finance. And I, I think the key approach that we uh, want to emphasise is that really, what needs to be you need to be aim you need to aim to sell what your counterparties are buying, right? So, our uh, having engaged with many of these counterparties over the last few years, our impression is that yes, of course, they like green finance. They like to uh, use the Development uh, finance to to you know support green infrastructure, whether it's um, renewable energy or grid expansion, etc. But that is probably not a sustainable model for rolling out the enormous um, infrastructure investment that we that we need to achieve. Uh, so we need to be smarter in the way we also use climate finance to unlock a much more ambitious uh, rollout and provide essentially crowd in capital market finance. And this is, I think, where there's a real opportunity for, for using international public money to support South Africa. So that the aims, and, and what I hear some of them saying, is that they're looking for a transformational transaction framework that will deliver globally significant and socially just mitigation in, in South Africa. And of course, set a very important example for how this could be done else, else, elsewhere. So in principle, one could construct a transaction framework that supports the ESCOM unbundling and uh, and as part of the conditionality requires the necessary power sector regulatory and market reforms that will facilitate the large-scale renewable and associated investments that we need. It could support the recapitalization of the unbundling ESCOM entities. And of course, needs to also support, um, justice in the transition, potentially by supporting a South African Just Transition Fund. So this is, in, with these ideas in mind, this is how we, um, what kind of led us to develop this, uh, conceptual framework for a Just Transition tr- Transaction. Which is really seen as a as a as a mechanism to unlock um, a Paris-aligned decarbonisation of South Africa, focusing on coal, on supporting coal power phase out. So we we kind of define it as a the just transition transaction is a prototype multilateral coal retirement mechanism. It aims to secure an accelerated Paris-aligned, and I should really say one and a half degrees-aligned, affordable and just energy transition for South Africa's power sector and affected communities. In the way in this scenario, in this version of the story, we see that the South African sovereign is actually the counterparty to the uh, to the transaction, um, and uh, and uh, it's uh, and, and in return, its obligation and its commitment will be to support the coal fleet phase down by creating an enabling policy uh, and the necessary policy and regulatory environment. And committing that there would be no know, further coal power investments in in South Africa um, and and in principle well, then in principle I and mean, in committing to an explicit emissions reduction trajectory uh, and our sovereign would then also um, use uh, essentially uh, use the um, concessional value the saving the financing saving that South climate uh, finance deal could deliver to our fiscus. To firstly capitalize a just transition fund, and but the bulk of the value could could then be used to to co invest with our sovereign to recapitalize the ESCOM entities who would then themselves be able to raise long term capital market finance in the way we always used to do it. So uh, the report, the technical report that sets out our thinking is uh, available on our website at, at this link. So in principle, what we're talking about is let 's assume um, on the left hand side in this pink bar, we talk about the uh, the current amount uh, the current debt on the ESCOM balance sheet and this work was um, this was modeling done a while ago and and then you, you could maybe add on top of that pink stack uh, the, the kind of technical debt that we have that we are behind on. We heard ESCOM talk about the fact that they don 't have sufficient um, uh, funds available to even do proper proper maintenance, right? So we are behind with uh, investments, even in keeping the coal plant running that we need, that we are depending on in the meantime, and, and grid investments, etc. So you have to add a bit of uh, technical debt on top of the existing debt on the balance sheet. And then the next bar here shows us roughly uh, at uh, 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 what the amount of um, debt we think that SCOM's earnings can can carry. And we, we already know that that's roughly about half. Then we have existing pledges from, from the sovereign to provide a bailout support to ESCOM. And then we see that there is this a re- remaining gap. And now the question is, could the concessional value of climate finance, uh, be used to incentivize and, so, and our, our government to plug, to, fill, to, to, to plug this re- re- remaining hole? And do that, of course, on the basis of achieving a particular climate, climate outcomes. So in terms of offering our counterparties what they, what they are buying, uh, we started with, with this picture in mind. Um, the, the red line here shows the modelled uh, CO2 emissions from our power sector uh, on, uh, based on our current policy trajectory. And then we modeled a number of power systems, uh, power system scenarios with the CSRR um, uh, who have uh, the appropriate modding uh, uh, cap- capability. We worked with them and we modeled a whole range of power development scenarios that would deliver more ambitious decarbonization. De- and We see that it's quite possible to develop a future power system that is actually more reliable. And, and, uh, than the current system is, in, in other words, it would become you, you build enough plant to ensure that you can meet demand on a reliable basis, and because you are transitioning to clean energy at a faster rate than currently envisaged, you are delivering additional CO2 savings, and that's indicated by these green by these green arrows. So then the question becomes: Well, can you put a value on this additional CO2 saving, right? And can we use that as the basis for the concessionality? in a large climate finance transaction. So if you look at the bottom left-hand curve, we just made some assumptions about what would be a very conservative picture around a value to place on that additional saving that could be used as the basis for concessionality in financing. And we started with something around $7 a tonne and slowly increased that amount. And then on the right-hand side, you can then see that uh, if you deliver a financing transaction that compensates you for that mitigation, additional mitigation, at agreed, at disagreed value, you then have a, a, a value stream. And, and essentially, what we're talking here about is, it is at $7 a tonne, at this additional mitigation, you can, over the period modeled, which is about uh, almost uh, 20, 25 years, uh you can deliver seven billion US dollars in con- concessional value or hundred billion ZAR. One and there are of course many ways to structure such a tra- transaction transaction. Uh, and we discover we, we discussed different ways of doing it in the in the paper on our on our website. Um, one way of doing it is 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 set out here in this diagram. Is essentially how one would do it here is that you would have to set up some financial intermediary. Uh, it could be uh, the World Bank, it could be the Climate Investment Funds, it could be any any appropriate entity, any appropriate multi multilateral uh, entity uh, supported by the key sponsoring governments uh, that we are talking to here and potentially pull in a whole range of other um, governments and parties. They would set up the, this, this facility that would uh, pr- provide the, the finance to to the South African sovereign, and at the first instance, um, they, uh, they could of course um, lend lend it at at what would be expected to be the normal commercial um, uh, price uh, or rate for South African sovereign debt, right? Um, and let me jump down to the next slide maybe to explain this a bit better. So what you could do is you would draw down your your, your chances in early years, I would say over a five-year period, and you would be committing to paying interest at the normal commercial rates for South, South African market uh, debt. However, what you could do is you could sculpt the interest payments to match the profile of your expected carbon The value of your expected carbon savings uh, over the term of the agreement, right? So it's just a sculpted loan. And what you then do is, in all respects, it would be a normal kind of uh, type of financing deal, but with the one addition, is the South African government would then have the option to uh, credit the value of the delivered, realized carbon savings against its debt service obligations. The way we've modelled it, yeah, this example is it's, it's purely based on the on the interest payments. So you still repay back your your capital. Uh, the um, the lenders still earn a modest return on their on their on their debt that they uh, extend. So in this case, one and a half percent in the model we used here. But you uh, you we have the option of um, of offsetting the value of the carbon savings. So now the question is, where does that come from, right? Because of of course that has to be made good somehow. So it, with this financial intermediary set up here, that if they are provided uh, guarantees uh, by the sponsoring sovereigns, in principle, in this op- option, they, if they would face the capital markets, the capital markets would in, essentially see a uh, de- developed country sovereign risk. So this facility could potentially raise uh, long-term capital in, in, the, in the markets at, say, for argument's sake, one and a half percent in dollar terms. It could potentially also access some con- concessional finance from DFIs, etc., even some grant funding for climate funds or philanthropic funds, and that would then be um uh, at that lower uh, cost of finance. And of course, the the value is made up by the guarantee provided by the um by the uh, developed country sovereigns that are sponsoring this this deal. Um, and that's that's essentially, without spending too much time on this, that's essentially how we thought that that could be done. And you on the on the counterparty side, the the story, the narrative would be: we're not expecting large uh, grants. Uh, grants. You, you, this is still a long, uh, a debt finance deal. You still get your capital back, and you get a modest return, uh, but you are, of course, delivering a, a large scale mitig- mitigation achievement. So this is the last slide. So I thought, what would be useful? Yeah, um, is just to briefly compare some of our ideas, show us some of our ideas compared to the ESCOM proposals, the jet proposal, um, and, and, and this is our version of that story. It might well be that ESCOM has a, has a slightly different view. So the first point to make is, is that um, uh, in our proposal, the, the transaction is, is between governments. It's a, it's a sovereign level, a multi, multilateral transaction. Where, uh, I think with the JET deal, even the way it was announced, um, uh, it's a bit unclear. Uh, I think the ESCOM proposals initially saw ESCOM as the counterparty, uh, relating directly with the multilateral development finance agencies. Uh, the deal announced at the COP, I think it really is not yet clear who the counterparties would, would be. The important point about the, about the ESCOM proposals that, uh, uh would uh, at partly be supported by the announcements is, is that it addresses the immediate challenge of of making progress with expanding the transmission and, dist- and distribution grids and of demonstrating that coal plants that are being retired and closed uh, can be repurposed and repowered and that there is essentially a future of the coal in those in those communities so this is really important i mean uh, a big part of our um, uh, natural renewable energy resource particularly in the northern cape and also now on the western Cape is essentially being sterilized uh, because the uh, power evacuation capacity on the transmission grid is now used up, so we have an enormous and urgent need to um, have a large scale investment in the grid and get that done quickly uh, so we have to get that going uh, and the 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 big value in our view of the escom proposals is that it, it essentially allow that to happen within the existing structure with the existing balance sheet. So it really is a way of um, a kind of coping with the fact that the balance sheet is still uh, still over-indebted, that the, the, the ESCOM has not yet been unbundled, um, so it is uh, an important and a valuable immediate bridging strategy, but of course, in our view, not a sustainable long-term strategy. So we see these processes being very much complementary. We think in particular that, uh, the JTT, as we, as we've envisaged it, uh, unlocks sustainable capital market financing of a much, uh, and therefore cries in, uh, the ability to, to finance a much larger and, in, in, in sustained investment program in the decarbonisation of the, the, power sector. Um, and, um, we actually, the JET, uh, the ESCOM JET proposals are focused on, on actual project financing, on individual projects, on the financing the hard way. Um, the, the the JTT proposals, as we've envisaged it, are focused on the ultimate outcomes. So we say, let's measure decarbonisation. That's what this to focus on. And, and let's uh, in, uh, measure also socio-economic outcomes, supporting justice in the transition, particularly in the Mpumalanga province, where the communities and workers will be affected by this. Um, And and also look and ensure that the necessary reforms take place, uh, which will then crowd in the actual investment of the infrastructure that needs to take place and do most of that in in the capital markets, which of course creates important opportunities for market players. Um, the further important uh, benefit of such a type of transaction as we've proposed is that it entails a long-term commitment, a long-term policy commitment, which provides critical forward visibility for all stakeholders, right? And that's important, not just because it de-risks uh, the kind of long-term, meaningful long-term view around ESCOM, but it also provides necessary certainty for uh, investors in local, in localizing the renewable energy value chain. This is very important for South Africa. It's politically important and it's economically important. But we've had uh, unpleasant experiences in the recent past where the renewables program has been, has been interrupted. So for, for, for our sovereign to commit to such a large sustained invest, uh, investment program by committing to the decarbonization outcomes, that provides a, a critical long term uh, certainty and de risks investments in the upstream value value chain. So that'll be really important. Of course, both um, uh, proposals look at the just transition and the, the need to support that. Uh, the ESCOM proposals are more project focused, where the JTT, our proposals are essentially saying let's provide let's use some of the concessional value to capitalise a separate funding facility, and that, that is really a whole large initiative that needs to be driven by development finance institutions, both locally and internationally. Um, the, the second last point here is that our proposals are specifically designed to, to support, to provide the climate finance support for South Africa, and particularly the power sector, to achieve the lower bounds of our new, newly updated nationally determined com- contribution. So we've argued as a country that uh, we need climate finance to assist us in achieving that. Uh, What this, what our proposals do, is showing how that could be done, because there hasn't yet been any other proposals that show how the power sector could be supported to achieve the lower, support the economy in achieving the lower range of NDCs. So essentially, our view is in conclusion that we are arguing for a single transaction framework. in in terms of uh, that should come out of this political announcement at the COP. That should, on the short term, support an an initial, uh, a number of challenges for the ESCOM project-based approach, but then should transition into a sovereign-level deal, which essentially incentivizes the sovereign to fix the systemic problems that are standing in our way of achieving our decarbonization commitments and co invests with our sovereign in, in, in achieving those outcomes.
0: Thank you very much. Students. Thank you, Javier. Um, there are a couple of questions coming through and I'll, I'll get uh, the first one being, what do you think will drive the rise in carbon prices uh, from the current seven US dollars per tonne? And what would be the risks to your forecast? Um, I think it's a, it's a good question in that fundamentally, your entire model rests on understanding the starting point of those carbon prices.
2: Okay, so um, so I'll respond to that before yes, you please. go on. Yeah. So what we've um, I think it's important to clarify the, the nature of this proposal. So this is not a, a carbon trading proposal, right? Uh, under Article Six of the Paris Agreement, it is a, a concessional climate finance proposal with other sovereigns primarily, because they'll be be underwriting the proposal and supporting the concessionality. And and so what we're saying is let's use a valuation because the transaction is designed to focus on the desired outcomes, which is measurable additional mitigation. Let's be explicit about what both parties are bringing to the transaction. We are delivering measurable mitigation, and we are committing also to, to demonstrate and deliver uh, justice in the transition by using some of the concessional value to support the just transition fund. But in return, we want to know what we're getting in terms of the concessionality. So let's make it explicit and value it in terms of dollars per tonne. So it's not actually a traded price. It is just a, a metric built into the transaction to to make it clear what the concessional value of the transaction is in terms of mitigation. All right.
0: Um, I'm going to turn to Peter. Um, there's uh, I'm going to weave in a question that will get you started and what you think about the proposal and um, how it would land in the markets is progress and contradiction. South Africa's you know, ideas like this are progressive, but the contradiction is the current noise we're getting from different ministers about what they think they should do. So the policy coherence is not there. Um, well, how do you think this this is going to land? What's your view?
1: So the, I think the really interesting comparison uh, of Revere's uh, structure versus the current ESCOM structure is there needs to be a lot of commitment made up front to make careers work on basically a new IRP, uh, on mapping your uh, NDCs into an actual uh, accelerated decommissioning path, etc. And these things are half on the table with the ESCOM ask through the $8.5 but in a very, very messy way. Mm. And strategically, the ESCOM plan, I think, is much more optionality to play op- um, different people off each other and different funders and different conditionality, um, whereas you have to get a lot of things right first up front. Um, uh, to make Care Careers Plan work, which I think ultimately the issue here, right, in classic South Africa the way is that South Africa will get there in the end, right? And it will make all the right choices in the end on where you need to men- uh, end up. But making those up front is very, very challenging. We're probably going to see a new IRP process, uh, energy planning process, this is for people unfamiliar with it, uh, start next year. But that could be a three-year process um, as it goes through NEDLAC, through social compacting, mm. um, etc. Et cetera. Um, but the need for funds in the system also, and this comes to Korea's point on on article 6 mm. uh is is quite politically problematic so dffe uh, are championing article 6 uh and and ways of getting money in because it provides a lot of notional free cash mm. On the table uh, in a way that Korea's plan doesn't do, but that also ties in, you know, a, a much more systemic solution on that side. And this is this is the, the sort of contestation that is going on. And ultimately, I think there has to be a lot of pressure, and there will be a lot of pressure from from funders uh, ultimately to decide what they what they prefer. But I think the key point that Korea really pulls out here is the need. Uh, for ESCOM to do new things. And I think the market and then we, we talked about the same people don't fully get this, right, is is that this is not about um, ESCOM magically just tidying up and going on in its merry way. ESCOM needs to move from doing about 800 million rand per year of transmission investment up to 17 billion per year of transmission investment. Uh, that's new stuff, that's new borrowing to do new things that is ultimately about unlocking the ERA schedule to the the energy liberalisation, uh, etc. And you know, Career and I talk a lot about uh, with people constantly about transmission, and we we assume everyone knows this, but I don't think the market quite gets this constraint point on transmission, Right. Uh, and it, it is as the needs is a catalytic, um, the catalytic change. So you know, I think I think that's the real thing to to ram home here is is that this this is. To allow ESCOM to do new catalytic things fundamentally. But in the long term, and this is the sort of downside of the ESCOM plan and this sort of bitty plan of going constantly getting different IFI financing from all over the place, um, is, is that's a huge amount of legwork, right, and time and complexity versus either a, a simple high level solution that career is, uh, is pushing or, as he says, the need for market financing ultimately. And that's why we need to see a spun out ISMO, right, a high quality. ESCOM institution that is able to uh, raise market financing at at cheaper levels. Uh, And again, I think the market understands all these individual components, Mm. uh, but what Korea has been tying together is the fact that actually all this is linked, right? Uh, And while spinning out an ISMO can seem like a geeky conversation, actually it's linked to all the financing, it's linked to access to finance um, and things like this. This is one big entire structure that we're starting to solve for at the same time.
0: But as the market begins to try and digest the different moving parts, where does that leave current uh, bondholders that are still, can I say, stuck in legacy debt? And this kind of provides, is it an an exit or is it a new opportunity to take on better credit, Escon, better credit?
1: So I think it's really fascinating talking to, to legacy debt holders, right? As they get more ESG mandates, they would much rather be buying a new ESCOM bond, um, you know, that is going into transmission that you can so, show some social value, uh, coming out of or a social bond even in, in, you know, some more exotic sort of ESG, uh, funds that is, is directly funding projects in Mpumalanga, uh, as opposed to, you know, obsessing over this, this debt problem that, that hasn't been solved. Uh, for so long. So, I mean, I partly I think that as a uh, as, as a motivation. Um, but no, I think I think investors are becoming a little lazy on this. Right. There is an implicit total guarantee. Um, and that's why we have to move on. Uh, you know, I think just to get on with it. Uh, and this is, I think, the problem at Treasury and elsewhere is just that there, there are actually no options here, really, in some sense, dealing with legacy debt. Uh, the rate agencies are assuming, as Kravir said, is, is already on the sovereign. The investors are as well. Um, and we need to make capacity for... Uh, for new debt. Now the problem is some of the comments from the finance minister have, have uh, in, in one sense, been correct to highlight this is all new borrowing coming in. But the unfortunate way of the way he sort of made it sound was that you have to solve the legacy debt problem first, spend years doing that, then do green financing. And you know ultimately this transmission need, given transmission investment takes a long time to come to fruition, has to happen right now. Uh, and you know we we do have to see solutions coming pretty quickly. And,
0: um, I mean, still, uh, I go back to the point that um, what needs to move first, I guess, from, from government to get this going is it – and I, I'll, I'll turn to you, Grave, first to, to give your comment. Is it a new IRP? Um, what is the uh, coherent policy process that we need to follow to try and catalyze a new way uh, for ESCOM?
2: Um yeah, I mean I would I would say maybe two points. The first is almost irrespective of any ideas around climate finance, I mean you can just park that for a minute and just deal with the ESCOM debt problem. I mean as Peter said, um the debt is already on the sovereign balance sheet. Uh we uh, we that the sovereign is servicing that debt at an enormous premium because it's it it's ESCOM has raised the debt, even for the guaranteed papers, we know there's a premium. Um, and we, and we don't have a plan in place. So there's this, this, is like, it's not clear where all this is going. And that increases the whole risk profile in the, in the, in the economy and for sovereign debt. So uh, I think from a policy point of view, it, it really is a no-brainer that we, we, we need to provide certainty and clarity around, on, on, so if I was the Minister of Finance, that's what I would have gone for. I would have said, Let's uh, agree with ESCOM, it, uh, we will provide cash injections every time every time you know, when there's a cash shortfall, when it needs to, it, it should raise no further debt. ESCOM doesn't raise any more debt until we get it going down to about 200 billion pounds, uh, on, on the current asset, asset base to where it should be. Um, of course, there will be details around that. If there's highly concessional funding available, maybe one would use that, etc. But in principle, you accept that you're already on the line as the sovereign to pay this, and you want to wind it down as quickly as possible by injecting the cash that you're going to have to inject anyway. It's the cheapest way of doing it, there's no better way. Then, separate to that, is this whole idea of, uh, of can we raise climate finance and maybe can we, while we, now that we've got this political announcement, and we have roughly six months to a year to work out this deal with these counterparties, uh, let's put on the table this debt issue, uh, we uh, can, you know we need we need support with that because we've got something to offer in return, and at the same time put on the table that that's something else we have to offer in return would entail updating the IRP, the energy plan uh, and and see if we can uh, essentially be proactive and 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 uh, extract this kind of le- level of concessionality that would, would that would help us so i I, I wouldn't say go and update the IRP before you have done any climate deals. I would say put all of this on the table and get the process going, and even start the IRP process, because that signals good faith. But as Peter says, it's going to take a while to f- finalize that plan, and the final version could partly depend on, on what we can get in a climate
0: deal. I mean, one of the questions here is, is, is basically, I'm s- s- summarizing it, is that yeah, we, we're done with the planning and talking, Uh, action needs to be taken and uh, so I'll turn to you Peter Is like what action uh, really can be taken from ESCOM's point of view particularly regarding this debt we've heard the CEO say they want the the government to take on uh, the debt and we've heard a myriad of proposals Um, is there a willingness actually uh, to deal with legacy debt
1: yes and no so theoretically yes (laughs) but (laughs) It doesn't come to fruition. So I think ESCOM can be more strategic about this. And it does have a lot of views on, on what can happen to, to legacy debt. I mean, it could, for instance, or DPE could put out a financial roadmap, for instance, that talks much more openly about why you need to do this, the options um, uh, about, you know, trading off, you know, different tariff paths, things like that. Um, is is some some thinking that has has gone on. And the the problem that we're seeing, though, in this is is the blockages, really, um, uh, on advice. Um, So we've seen a big problem of ESCOM bringing in advice, particularly from foreign advisory firms. Now, partly that's a hangover from state capture, but I think it's also partly an ideological uh, blockage to get in global best practice advisors, we all know the names, uh, to come in and advise on uh, on this sort of thing. Uh, We've seen the same thing in SAA and other things where, where this has been... Uh, where this has been a blockage. But I think also the political economy doesn't deal with not having real options here, mm-hmm. right? And there, I think there is an allergic reaction in DP and elsewhere to actually not having choice. Uh, and so someone, maybe a new head of ALM like we have now in Treasury, um, maybe um, the conversations that these global funders um, and donors will will be bringing to the table needs to kind of lay this out, that there aren't really options uh, on 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 how you deal Um, uh, how you deal with this. But we're also dealing with a lot of madness on this front as well. So uh, in the last couple of years, there's been a big debate on the left in South Africa about repudiating as debt. That's now come out in reality from, unfortunately, the deputy finance minister um, and uh, and an academic, uh, Mark Swilling, uh, about um, uh, restructuring, basically sovereign debt to make space for this. Uh, And it's mad because, you know, there's a limited finite number of global investors who all hold ESCOM and who all hold sovereign debt, you would then be basically annoying uh, and then going back and asking for more new funding in in future. Uh, And then of course, there's the debt for equity swap idea as well, which is like the undead. Uh, It's an interesting theoretical uh, structure, uh, but actually, I mean, I worry a lot that there are a lot of vested interests behind it. There's a lot of corrupt people who want access to seats on boards from equity holders in ESCOM and there's a lot of other reasons that this is still on the table, even if it's sort of never going to happen. Um, And I think that's sort of why we need to focus in on the fact that there's actually very little choice of of what's workable.
0: And what would you say about some of the other ideas of um, transferring uh, debt to sit somewhere in between the sovereign and in a sort of independent SPV? Is that also uh, a dead on arrival kind of idea?
1: Well, I mean, I think I think the SPV idea is fine, but it's ultimately all sovereign risk. Right. So, so this, the structure of how you do that, you can argue over. But, but for me, the main thing is that there is uh, the, the taking off of the balance sheet is ultimately the uh, more explicit assumption uh, on the sovereign balance sheet. So the the, 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 nub, the sort of nuts and bolts now, I think, of lesser importance as the psychological hurdle to get over uh, of government. They are they are explicitly taking the risk.
0: So, I mean, if, if, if I can put it this way, we, we're going to get an, an unbundling process, um, which will be formally presented. I assume that when they talk about pushing debt down, that is ESCOM essentially in the divisions apportioning cost of debt down to division accounting divisions? Accounting-wise. Exactly. Accounting-wise. Or is, uh, will these entities need to go and get a credit rating of their own and raise money as ESCOM generation as opposed to ESCOM holdings, which has problems
1: with, with it structurally. But is that the intention in your understanding? So the problem with the ESCOM roadmap is it doesn't actually signal when an ISMO is properly spun out from the holdco. And this is the key step to then go and get your own standalone rating to then actually raise finance and, and cheaper quality financing. So at the moment, the idea is that these are all Chinese walled ring fence subsidiaries. This is coming up as well with creditors, as I'm sure we're having the same conversations around TNPA. Um, so there are going to be some conversations, I think, about moving loans, ECA, uh, maybe some, some IFI debt into, into sub- subcos. Uh, In ESCOM, but actually, really, it's not going to be about market debt, and it can't be. Um, But, you know, there is a big political, ideological, technical debate on what the Chinese wall subsidiary really is. Now, ESCOM would like to say. Um, it's all fine, you know, we're gonna have these policies in place, uh it's gonna be very independent. Same uh arguments you made around TNPA. I don't believe that. I think it's the classic why sort of called Mandela problem, you know, that governance is fine, right, with a good leader until it's not, until you have a Zuma back in the in, on in, on the case, right? Uh and that's what we'll have with ESCOM, with Andre in charge, maybe it's fine having subsidiaries like this. But we can't build a structure and we can't build solutions for Andre being there forever.
0: I think the, the, one of the critical problems is the absence of a plan around debt, an explicit plan around debt, either from National Treasury's point of view or from ESCOM, which kind of leaves the market to in, a, in limbo in the transition. So is it a stakeholder that needs to come to the table um, and be heard, and how, how does that happen?
1: But all plans are already on the table, and you know, career was in the presidential uh, ESCOM Task team and, and, and you know, was 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 there as as one set of ideas. I think people forget. In I I, I even have to remind myself of the date. The the uh, budget 2019, when Treasury had done the market sounding before that, everyone in the world had come and told us what their plan was. Oh, Treasury rather, and nothing has happened. There's like 44 presentations sitting in Treasury about ideas, which nothing has happened on it. Right. So you know all the ideas are there. You need ultimately someone with credibility like a global advisor or someone to come in and to take charge of the situation uh, for a recognition that actually you have relatively little choice. Um, and I think that can happen, as I said, with some new leadership in uh, in, in Treasury, etc. I think Enoch is interested uh, in starting to move to solve this. Um, but but yes, I mean, ultimately, that there is, there is very little substantive technical in the way of, of us actually getting a solution. And uh, to, in terms of
0: just the discussions uh, that you, at COP, um, what were what would you say is your sentiment about um, how committed uh, the rest of the international world, not just the the you know the the US, UK, France, Germany, EU delegation, um, to seeing this uh, transition through uh, for for the likes of ESCOM? Is there a limited window where? You know, Or is there some negotiating power where South Africa can say there's no way else you're going to get this mitigation? Um, so, you know, what is the balance of negotiation that we're going to go into, in your view?
1: Yeah. So I'd be interested in hearing Korea's views on this as well. I'll turn to he, just yeah, he, he interacts with some of the same, same people. But my sense very much is that, you know, there is there are deep trust problems. On policy, and that's the importance of having an IRP, of, of having decommissioning fall out of an IRP, oh, sorry, as, as, a, as a sort of an input, um, and, and being able to have a carbon envelope, et cetera, and, yeah. and put that into IRP uh, to show commitment uh, on that front. Uh, but there are massive trust problems of these, these donors on, on energy policy. Uh, and so you have to get over that hurdle first, and is where, if you like, South Africa. Uh, has limited, I think, real negotiation space. So there's a lot of political and societal contestation now, starting around the 8.5 billion. Labour's saying, oh, we have to make sure it concentrates on Mpumalanga and all this sort of stuff. But the donors already know this. This is why they're giving the money. Uh, You know, Korea described it as sort of uh, like a test case. It's an experiment. And South Africa needs to take advantage of being sort of an experiment. But no, I think the donors are very well aware of the the geographic focus of this on Mpumalanga. You know, I don't think that really needs explaining or, or negotiating uh, in any in any meaningful sense.
0: Javier, uh, your 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 thoughts on 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 the same topic?
2: Yeah, I mean, I um, agree with Peter. I think we we actually have been told this a couple of times. That uh, it always surprises me actually that we we have we are a- attractive uh, to the donor countries uh, as a first case uh, as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an experiment. Um, I think it is because partly because our president has been increasingly vocal on the need to deal with climate issues, on the need to reform the power sector, uh, on the need to diversify away from ESCOM and supporting renewable energy. And I think the president's recent um, quite, um, what shall I say, assertive support for the uh, de-liberalization of the power sector up to 100 megawatts uh, in opposition from the energy minister has played a very important role to send that message. So I think um, donor countries look at South South Africa, they see a single large state owned enterprise in trouble, uh, and uh, they can essentially do one deal, one framework deal, and uh, achieve globally significant decarbonization. So I think that is attractive um compared to uh, but I, I, so I think that helps us and and what surprises me is that you know we always think we are very complex and the politics is mess- very messy but actually to go to India or Indonesia uh things are uh, sometimes even or, or, yeah i mean are sometimes even more even more complex, and of course the bigger countries yeah, etc. And you're not dealing with one large state-owned power entity. You're dealing with, a multiple, with multiple players in some of those jurisdictions. So that is working our favour. I think what works against us, um, uh, as some of the points Peter has already made, uh, there's a trust, uh, of course there are trust issues for good reason, but also what works against us is we're not you know, we're just not the biggest emitter. We're not. Uh, the, the, I mean, if you can do a deal with India or with Indonesia, you could potentially achieve much greater levels of additional mitigation. So the real focus on phasing out coal power uh, is in Southeast Asia. And so, if and that is ultimately where the tension uh, I mean, it's it's already happening. Uh, there are uh, people like ourselves that have been doing work there. Um, the, the Asian Development Bank is doing important work, etc., etc. So, uh, it, it, our, this window will pass if we don't take it for sure, because we are not the biggest uh, emitter, and if it's going to become too complex to do it here, of course, it will move on. So that's important to keep in mind. And I think I was surprised to see in this political statement that they've given themselves a year. Um, I know it's very complex, and you probably need at least a year, but if we don't pull it off on that year, I think that's it. Then we won't get the deal.
0: Indeed, a lot of the financial flows we've seen um, for uh, climate mitigation has been flowing to Southeast Asia, and obviously this political declaration uh, changes that quite significantly for um, South Africa and Africa. Um, And, yeah, I I agree with you that, you know, time time is not on our side also because, you know, ESCOM is an entity. It is in a liquidity insolvency crisis. Um, And, you know, from time to time, we always expect, or let me not say time to time, every budget we expect some sort of announcement about uh, how they will deal with the debt and we kicked the can down the road, and it, it's just an overhang. Like you said, the rating agencies do include it. But I suppose my last thought is, do, do we necessarily need to restructure ESCOM's um, debt to, to accommodate um, new climate finance? Um, in, in, in this case, I'm trying to think in the shoes of investors to say, you know, do they need to brace themselves for extended negotiations with, the, with an entity or can are, are there ways to is there a better way around it that's my question I'll, I'll start with you Peter and what you think
1: so there's still a very deep risk aversion to talking to creditors formally and creditor votes which I think is quite mad and even on restructuring so sometimes I go to Pretoria and feel naughty and I'll say, why don't you just restructure all the ESCON market debt, right? And a lot of people watching have made a lot of money right out of uh, holding ESCON yes. debt yes. Uh, and knowing full well the risks um, and taking views on implicit versus explicit guarantees, etc. And so the lack of willingness to think about that is, I think, bred more fundamentally about uh, not willing to be sort of any other stereotypical EM, you know, talking, talking to creditors. Mm. But I think, you know, particularly with ESG mandates, particularly if we are talking about the much wider reasons um, for, for making the space so whether it's sulfur emissions, whether it's jobs maximization, whether it's plants that's just you know, not functional and talk about the asset base uh, and EAF and, and things like that. Um, there, there are a lot of reasons I think to talk to creditors for instance um, about you know, particularly spinning out an ISMO and asking for creditor votes. Hmm. Right? Uh, and going in and saying here is some financing, here a guarantee, etc. We are spinning out an ISMO to, to enable a better um, uh, power sector. Um, but but no, but government doesn't want to have those sorts of conversations with with creditors. So we are stuck in this relatively narrow set of solutions, mm. or, or any one solution, which is um, some kind of swap, particularly uh, voluntary swap of of, um, uh, of SCOM debt for SAGBs or whatever however you structure the SSBSPV etc. Um, so yeah, there are some quite fundamental basics, I think that are, are in the way and I think, you know, speaking to a, a lot of people on this call as well, you know, there, there is an interest to engage, right, mm-hmm. with government and I think, I think that's now partly why investors have maybe got a little lazier on this is, is there's been a, a willingness to engage with DPE, with Treasury, with ESCOM and, and yet nothing moves and those ideas don't really seem to to go anywhere um, but no, I think we are eventually going to come to a, to a solution um, but by sort of brute force, by some of the external pressure. Um, from people, um, by, as laying out, maybe some of the tariff implications, et cetera. Indeed. Um, and, uh, and we will get there in the end, but this is not the optimal route. The optimal route would have been to you know, stand back and, and, and take a running leap at a, at a more optimal solution.
0: Suppose what would be your closing comments as we come to, to an end? Um, particularly around, um, the way forward in, 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 for, for, for South African investors, um, what do you think um, should be front of mind for them um, when it comes to dealing with climate finance and climate finance opportunities going forward?
1: Well, it's firstly that ESCOM needs to do new stuff. It needs to massively invest in transmission to enable all the other stuff people got excited on the operation boom, lower reforms, energy liberalization. Uh, I think that really needs to hit home. Um, It's the fact there's a lack of actual uh, probably viable solutions in the end for ESCOM's debt and uh, government will end up going down the right path. It's just still going to take a rather long time. Um, and on climate finance, I think it's to understand that there is there a lot of conversation on all sides, uh, including on the donor, donor countryside. Uh, and that we're in a very awkward place for South Africa, if you remember what happened with the World Bank loan yeah. last year, which collapsed because of a sheer sort of allergic nature to any conditionality, uh, you know, at all. Uh, this is going to be very hard, but I think it's going to be very instructive for investors watching how this feeds into uh, energy policy, uh, into discussions uh, on that front. So I think it's uh, for investors as well. I think that reason people on the ESG side, on uh, on the climate side, thinking about portfolios, the carbon intensity of portfolios, uh, find South Africa so interesting is, is actually a lot of these meaty issues uh, are, are now going to be there being discussed, us in the presidential um, climate committee, uh, whether it's from ESCOM direct with with creditors. So it's uh, it's a very interesting time to be a... Uh, an ESCOM investor.
0: And do you think local investors have a significant, will get a significant role to play in all of this or is all the attention really at getting the concessional
1: finance? Well, I think that's where the attention is, has shifted, right? Um, and as long as there is an aversion to talking to creditors uh, in a formal sense, uh, I uh, will probably say the same. All right. uh, Reved, uh
0: your uh, parting comments, um, what would you like to say?
2: Yeah, so just to pick up where Peter left off, there, uh, you know, my I think my main message is that um, if we encourage governments uh, on both governments on both sides of this of this political announcement to use the opportunity of climate finance to fix these underlying systemic problems, then what we do is we unlock a much larger capital market financing opportunity than what we currently have. And, and that's, that's really why we think it's important. It's not as important because it's a, it's, it it will be, you know, new, new assets to invest in and new deal, deal flow. It's also because, uh, on the medium term, if, if we don't enable the the accelerated decarbonisation of the power sector and the entire economy, it's going to become increasingly harder to hold assets here. So that's also why we need to be smart and use the climate finance opportunity in the most effective way.
0: Well, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. That's all we have time for. Um, this is an evolving and fluid, uh, discussion to have, but I think we've got the bones of, uh, uh, the, the direction in which we, we need to follow. And I think, uh, you know, if you, one who believes that, you know, you need to keep some hope alive for, for some change, um, then, then this is it. Uh, but, uh, certainly we'll be having far more discussions as ESCOM Puts out um, its own plans uh, around the unbundling and spin-off, uh, but uh, you know we think um, the important uh, bit is that there's a new opportunity here, and there are also new risks to
2: try and understand. Um, this is all we have for today, and good evening, everybody.